Yo, what's up, people? It's the Solar Kid, and uh, this is the Other Side of the Sun podcast. And today I've got uh, Brian De Huda, formerly uh, yeah. of uh, Moodface Five. You also used to drum for Bormslang as well, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. When I actually when I moved to Cape Town, this is I mean as we begin the story, you know. So thanks, yeah, thanks for having me. It's uh, awesome. I mean, I don't do this kind of thing at all, so um, awesome I'm glad to you asked you, me. Thank you, thank you. No, I'm really happy yeah. that to have you. I mean, like, uh, I'll just tell you a little bit. Like, Moodface Five for me was very a very very big band because like it kind of embodied everything about the time and everything about the music that I really loved at that time you know I mean it was live you had Deform slaying the, the bars there you know you had Ernie just crushing the vocals and then you guys on the band were just killing it man. And, and, uh, and you were in Johannesburg at this time or when I was you? I saw okay. you guys live a few times I saw you at uh, okay. Carfax mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um play the old car facts and stuff. Yeah, yes, I, mean, I yes, was yes. a very, um, I was studying sound engineering at the time. Oh, you were? Okay, okay. So I used to be a very avid giga. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was out the line. Yeah. yeah, cool. I mean, those were the years where, where, where music, I mean, for me personally, anyway, it was a full-time thing, but also where the music scene was kind of, it was something going on, you know, it was post-apartheid, it was those, uh, well, we started in 97, 98, so it was those years where there was still a lot of promise for for anything, really, you know, and music was exciting at the time, you know. Um, things have drastically changed, as we know, worldwide, you know, with this whole lockdown and that kind of nonsense. But, um, yeah, the, the the music industry, I would say, is back the way it felt, like when when it changed from CD to, to, to digital MP3s, you know. It feels like that kind of, like, nobody really knows what's going on, you know. Yeah, yeah, this is South imagine. Africa. I don't know how it is in the UK or anywhere else in the world, but it just seems like a, a kind of a, a weird time again, you know? I think, um, like, in the UK, well, I suppose, I mean, the, the whole <laughs> industry as such died. Not died, but it had to go through a serious transformation. That's right, know, yeah. When, when physicals started dying. And the fact that mm. the record labels didn't capitalize on the new you know, way of streaming and um, all that kind of thing and allowed Napster to kind of capitalize and and cheapen Mm. music. That is what changed everything, which is why until COVID, most people were making their money from merch and from live gigs and, you know, a million streams doesn't even get you much, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of money. Yeah, amazing. I think, I mean, you were just saying like the, the like the record industry allowed it. I think nobody knew what the hell was going on, you know, because it was such a radical change in, in, in formats, you know. And it seems a little bit like that now in a way that that uh, not many people know how to predict what's where it's going from here, you know, because live gigs are... Now that live gigs are out of the equation, where... Yeah, live gigs are out of the equation, money? yeah, for now. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. It's uh, the, the, the economic impact on people being able to buy music is... Is I'd, I'd say at least a third of the population is out of that that uh, um, equation, you know, of actually purchasing music, you know. So yeah, so I mean, over really, year, really interesting. Sorry to cut you there, but I was just going to say, like, over no year, a lot of people can you can actually make a living doing live, whether you're in function bands, whether you're doing yeah, um, yeah. your own stuff, playing in, in mm. bars, restaurants. I have quite a few friends who are scratching their heads right now, like really, yeah either doing driving jobs or they've become delivery drivers, stuff like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. when I left South Africa, the market, it was so small and very niche. So mm. I mean, I'm not even sure what it must be like now and, and how it affects. It's non-existent. Yeah. yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, it's non-existent, you know. I mean, like, you know, politically speaking, economically, South Africa has issues that UK, that are different, say, to living in the UK or Germany or, or even in the States, you know. Um, so people are, there's a famous German saying that is like, first you first you eat and then you can have culture, you know. It's like, it's that kind of scenario where if you're not eating, you're not going to theater, you're not going to the movies, you're definitely not going to go and see a live gig, you know. No, so of South Africans have been preoccupied with with trying to just get bread on the table for well, a very long time, you know. So it's just a weird kind of thing. But having said that, there's, as you know, Cape Town and South Africa in general, because of that too, there's a incredible amount of, of, of creativity that's around, you know. Yeah. And this is a, this is always the nice thing. It's it's a kind of unpredictable, but you know, you if, if everything lines up nicely, you, you could go out there on Friday or even during the week and catch an amazing gig somewhere, you know. Yeah. It just depends on, on who you know, a little bit of a network, you know. And um, so there's still some interesting stuff happening out there for sure. Um, yeah. And I was, I was speaking to some people about that and I was really slightly disappointed because even when I left, I mean, I left in about 2005 and before that, um, in Cape Town used to, 2005, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, Cape Town used to have its hotspots, Long Street and all those places and like, you know, the, I don't know, um, in, in Joburg, there used to be loads, you know, there used to be like yes. uh, Melville mm. and all these places, mm. um, Baseline. Yeah. And um, like now it just seems like there's not much at all. So yeah, there's, there's, there's not much. Even before really lockdown or what? Um, already before lockdown, definitely. It was, it's like something that's been, you know, I would say I was in Germany between 2010 and 2014. 2011 and 2014. So already before 2010, you know, there was a bit of a, period where the the world cup and that whole um that whole euphoria kind of mm. void a little bit of like venues having music but it, i think it just kind of disappeared even already from after the world cup you know a little bit bit by bit that gigs were offering less money um already that time when i got back in 2014 2015 the rates that like places were offering musicians live musicians were ridiculous man it was yeah, terrible man it, it wasn't good you know so it's kind of been on a steady decline in that way and also again like we're just talking about the formats changing and the way people consume music you know and uh funny i was watching something the other day frank zappa interview um way back on mtv you know where he was like the interview was asking him about like what's happening in the music business and he was like well you should know mtv you know you guys fucked it up for us basically you know so basically <laughs> But basically, like putting video to music, you know. Now it's not about the song anymore. Now it's about the pictures, you know. Yeah. And uh, exactly. And I think this is also the thing that mark. You know, people are saturated with content generally, you know. Okay. So, so. But I think that's just a sign of the times. There's nothing we can do about it. It's not, you know. Um, keep making music. Keep working with people. Keep collaborating where you can. I think that's the only way to to really uh, seed out the good or the good seed from the bad seed. You know, is that. Not good and bad, but you know what I'm trying to say is that there'll yeah. always be good content. You have to kind of look for it. That's all, you know, and have some sort of network. No, of course, man. So, um, tell us a little, tell me, I mean, tell us a bit about your background in terms of were you you're not originally you born in uh, in Vintuk or Namibia? exactly? Yeah, I was born in Vintuk, Namibia. For those of you who don't know, it's, it's the next country up on the west coast. Um, a bit of background history of Namibia. It used to be a German colony, so there's few, quite a few German-speaking people out there, but I wasn't from that side at that time. My grandparents from my mother's side were from Hamburg, Germany, and they arrived in Cape Town on a ship in the 1950s after the war in Europe. My dad was from Johannesburg. Um, my dad was a drummer, so music has kind of been in my family 
in, from my dad's side for since I can remember. So I've been into drums and percussion since I was a baby, you know. So it's it's literally it's been with me for a very long time. And um, yeah, I just I, I've got and uh, I, I just yeah I just love music in terms of the, the what I've had is an exposure. Look look, my parents were I'm born to white South African parents or Southern uh, Southern African parents of European origin. Um, you know, the musical influences weren't, those were the years of apartheid, you know. So what I was listening to at home was lots of like big band stuff. My dad used to love like big band jazz, um, stuff like Nat King Cole or, or Louis Armstrong, that type of thing. Ella Fitzgerald. My mother was like more more into the, the Beatles and the, the pop phase of the, the Elvis phases, you know. Yeah. Uh, so nothing groundbreaking in that, in that sense or nothing, should I say, counterculture, you know, nothing, <laughs> mostly mainstream type of stuff, but still it's music that I enjoyed listening to and singing along to. Um, but growing up in Namibia at the time, um, so I went to the only multiracial school in, in Namibia, which is St. Paul's College, which is like a, a Catholic co-ed, like both girls and boys school. Um, so uh, I, I was exposed to 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 yeah to other South Africans, which was a blessing. And um, and somehow I remember this from very young. I was always drawn to African music, you know, in some way. I didn't uh, I didn't know it, and there wasn't really access to African music other than turning on the radio, which I was normally told then to turn off, you know, by my parents because yeah, they didn't like what they heard. But I enjoyed that that kind of that that guitar music, you know, that ding 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 ding. You know, that kind of like Zimbabwean, yes. Angolan, the typical uh, three, four rhythm type of uh, six, eight rhythm stuff, you know. So I was, I was always kind of into that and it really did intrigue me. And, um, and then, of course, when, when after getting through censorship boards, because this is the other thing that one needs to remember growing up in the 80s, because we're talking about the 70s and the 80s in South Africa, essentially, because Namibia was a province of South Africa. So yes, it was governed yeah. in the same way, same rules applied. Uh, so there was a censorship board. Music wasn't easy to come by good music, you know. So when we started to get, when I say we, my brother and myself, started to get exposed to stuff like Bob Marley and the Wailers, Peter Tosh, uh, Steel Pulse from the UK, those were like big events in my life, you know. It was like, wow, this is not just music that speaks to me because there's something in the rhythm section, you know, there's something in the bass and the drums that's driving this thing. Uh, but also obviously the lyrics, you know, which I didn't at this time understand uh, a lot of the concepts that were being put out in the songs, you know, um, but the music spoke to me, the vibe spoke to me. So reggae was a big influence in my life for sure. Definitely jazz from my dad. And then generally just music, you know, whether it be stuff like Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, which is the typical sort of like 60s, 70s stuff. Hendrix, yeah, my dad of course. was into that. Yeah, really? Okay, yeah. So yeah. I, I was kind of exposed to a lot of different stuff, you know, but drumming from a young age for sure. Cadet drumming in a, in a cadet band, you know, marching band. Yes, yeah, the marching Yeah, band. we had cadets every Wednesday. That was the thing, you know, you either go march like soldiers or you play in the band, you know? So I was playing in the band and that was my introduction to, to snare drum, marching snare drum kind of stuff. So rudiments like paradiddles and, yes, of course. you know, triplets and all that kind of stuff, you know? So how yeah, did you so find your way to um, playing with... The Cape. Uh, yeah, playing with... Movies. Yeah, the Cape. Oh. Yeah, so basically after school, I was forced to do that military service like all of us were at the time. I did like a year and a half. So basically it was in that year where... Mandela was released, so it was all those like crazy years, you know. So Mandela was released. I had my so that was last year of military yeah. service cut short. It was 1989. 89. Okay. Yeah. So basically, I finished 87. I matriculated. 88. I went to the army. I was supposed to do until the end of 89, but then all that cut was cut. You know, there's things were like really uh, happening very quickly. Yeah. So I didn't finish my military service, which was great. But then, um, so 
So I hung around in Namibia for a few years, not really knowing what to do. And uh, then eventually I, 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 music kind of just bit again because I'd kind of left it after, you know, after finishing school and then the army music wasn't really prominent in my life. You know, um, yeah, it was 80s, apartheid South Africa. There wasn't really Vintook, you know, Vintook, it's like a <laughs> suburb of Johannesburg, you know, tiny town oh in the bush God. felt, nothing going on. Um, and of course, racist, sexist, uh, you know, all of that. I mean, in terms of it's, it's the, the, the vibe at the time wasn't really conducive to, yeah, let's like play music and create music, you know, anyway, something special. But, uh, so I eventually moved down to Cape Town in 95 and, uh, uh, this is, so I played in a couple of different like bands in around downtown, like long Street in the area. And um, then very soon after that, um, actually, well, I played in the band Wormsang. We formed a band called Wormsang. It was a three-piece. Initially, it was a four-piece with a vocalist, bass, drums, and uh, guitar. So I met these two brothers, Afrikaans guys. Uh, we, re yeah, we really got on really well musically. We just gelled. You know, there's this kind of special thing that happens with artists or musicians or lovers. You know, it's like you meet someone and it just something's just working. You don't know what to, you know, you can't really identify what it is but it really worked so we had a really good year and a half of playing with Wonsang which then um, we got rid of the not got rid of but we lost our singer at the time it was just not working out you know and um, then I went to matinees at, at Angels in in Greenpoint which is a strip of uh, um, clubs actually gay bars during the night daytime was like matinees where they did hip hop and um, I went to a couple of the matinees because I knew there were some open mic things happening there with MCs over either drum and bass or jungle or like just empty beats, you know? And, um, that's where I got to meet, um, Denver Turner, Deform. And, uh, he was at the time, he was a graphic designer, uh, born and raised in Lansdowne, Cape Flatside. And, uh, that was also my first sort of real interaction between white and black South Africa or black Cape town, you know, in, in terms of like really, cause that's really where, where I wanted to go. I wanted to meet people that were like, doing something that yeah. was amazing you know and uh, especially this cross-cultural thing really appeal, appealed to me when i say cross-cultural i was never really a hip-hop head essentially but i listened to hip-hop throughout my with other music throughout my developing years um but denver as a as a, as a character was like a full you know four corners hip-hop yeah, can you imagine you know imagine. yeah yeah so this is a so i got to exposed to a couple of other characters on that on that uh in, in that scene but yeah we kind of hit it off really quite quickly and easily so he joined us for a couple of rehearsals and within a few weeks we were, re we were recording three singles already you know so it was like a quick kind of just like i got together with those two brothers it was with denver as well it was a quick uh like let's let's exactly. do this thing you know yeah so that was like 97 1997 that was at that stage. It wasn't Mood Phase Five yet. It was called Boomslang um, um, featuring Ultra Berserk or something like that. I can't remember exactly. It was basically it was we were still Boomslang but featuring Ultra Berserk, you know. And then um, through a mutual friend of Denver's, a DJ that we knew on the scene, a guy called Adam Lieber, who also lives in London now, as far as I know. Um, and uh, he we invited him to join us on on turntables. So he wasn't a scratch DJ. He was more like was a selector, you know, he yeah. had a ton of records, really nice stuff. They were, they were having kind of regular parties around Cape Town house parties where him and some other DJs would just select really nice tunes coming out of the Ninja tune and the, the early kind of drum and bass and jungle scene, you know? And, uh, this was, a when that, when I heard jungle and drum and bass, that for me was in the next, it was like, wow, this is, 
feel like I found my like my true love, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. because of again the influence, you know, it's undeniable the influence of drum and bass and jungle is just got so much uh, reggae and roots in it, you know. Yeah, um, just yeah. double up, you know. Take a 90 beats per minute song, put it on 180 beats, and you got something, you know, take some jazz breaks and you got something really nice happening, you know? Yeah, I so, yeah, that was a new thing. Yeah, new thing for, for me, and I loved it. And uh, this is so that was the beginning of the Mood Phase 5 era is when we met uh, DJ Bonanza, Adam Lieber, Denver, and myself and the two brothers, you know? So, so Ernie wasn't on, in the picture yet, you know? Okay. So then, uh, literally within a few months of that, I'd say within six or 10 months, we were looking for a singer. And a friend of mutual friend of my, well, a friend of mine said he knew somebody that might work, and uh, that's when I called Ernestine. And uh, so Ernie's from Grassy Park, that's sort of similar side to where Lansdowne, yeah, where Denver comes from. Park. Yeah, I mean, I'm <laughs> <laughs> no, no, yeah, of course, um, for the people, yeah, yeah for no, the no, listeners, you know. So Cape Flats is a big place, lots of suburbs, but uh, Grassy Park and Lansdowne are sort of on the edge of just behind the where the white suburbs end and the railways and whatever start and then on the other side of the tracks basically you know so it was like a new new world for me and it was uh, quite exciting because yeah anyway so we had an audition with ernie and uh, she joined also pretty much almost instantly and uh things worked you know it was a little yeah. awkward because again it was four guys five yeah four guys and a and a, and a, and a girl you know it was a, there was there was a bit of edginess and there was there were a few sort of I say just like unspoken sort of silent things that we didn't quite know how to deal with yet, but like with time and, and just getting to know each other, it was, uh, yeah, it just became something quite amazing. So we wrote quite a lot of songs in those first, uh, the first year things didn't kind of just, uh, although we sparked creatively, the recording process was really difficult, you know, because in those years still, it was, it was before the digital era, getting into a recording studio cost money, a lot of money. Plus, like, you know, you're left with a dat tape, you know? What are you going to, what the fuck are you going to do with a dat tape? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm so it was like a, a weird time as well, you know, to kind of make sense of the recording thing and what are you going to do with this thing, you know? You got, wow, you paid like three or four K for this tape, you know? <laughs> yeah. Now you got to like take it to the next level, you know? So, yeah, just, um, so that was really just the beginnings of um, learning about the music business, publishing, uh, obviously recording studios and, 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 uh, Registering your 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 names with the with the Samro with the rights organizations and stuff like that. Sam um, but, or Samro. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But big learning curve. Yeah. So we recorded one album at Mother City Records, also just off Long Street, and that was the one that kind of drove us into some into some public spaces. You know, I mean, is that radio. Steady on or was that before? Yeah, Steady on exactly. Yeah, Steady on. So I think it, I can't even remember how many tracks, but it was a it was a nice album because it had like a nice varied sound on it it was the first uh let's say the first of its kind in south africa but the dude it was quite pioneering in the sense that it had like i used a lot of as a drummer i didn't play a lot of the stuff live i sampled myself which is how those songs were were based on samples of myself you know so I had a small sampler like a roland uh sp202 it was one of those old dr202 yeah like uh, basically just a phrase sampler so i could just sample my with a stereo mic on it sample my drums and then find a nice loop and then take it to the studio, you know? So yeah. that's how we basically made that album is through drum loops. From my own loops or program. Mm. Yeah, so that was in a nutshell how, I mean, the first, not the first works, but yeah, from playing live to... 
getting into drum machines. And uh, so how did you guys link up with uh, African Dope? Because uh, they were like probably my favorite label at yeah. that era. I mean, they were associated with so many bands I loved, you know, like mm-hmm. you guys, I think it was Godessa. Yeah. And, uh, I think... Um, I think Max Normal got him. I don't know if it's mm. Max Normal, but the um yeah constructors. Construct- oh yes, Marcus yeah, yeah. Norman. Felix mm, yeah. yeah, exactly. Oh yes, yes, yes. Oh yes, yes. yes. Yeah, so we were like the first. Uh, we were the first signing on that label. Um, so basically, it was just. I mean, you know, Cape Town is a small scene. You know, it's like a slice of London or a slice of New York. You know, it's a really small little scene. So there weren't a lot of labels in Cape Town. There were a couple, but. Uh, Effinger Dope, somehow we were connected indirectly through some people to them, just happened to know them. And crushed um, and sorted, or what do they mean? Crushed and sorted, exactly. Yeah. So Fletcher and, uh, and Roach at the time were the DJ Roche. duo. Yes. Yeah, crushed and sorted. Yeah. So they had, um, they had like a live DJ set that they would play quite at most of the festivals and clubs and like Get a Fix and uh, a couple of like regular clubs in, in the city that were working like get a fix was one of them, you know? So basically it's the kind of place you could like, without getting bust, like sit and roll your spliff, listen to music daytime in long street, which is unheard of, you know, but it yeah. was happening. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So there were a couple of really nice, I mean, those years in long street was really nice because there were a lot of like uh, venues that weren't venues as such. They were just like a space in the top of a building. People knew about it. You could go there, ring the buzzer, get let in. And then you in, in, in like a club basically but daytime you know not with lights and but you could sit there chat have oh. a drink s- smoke weed and that kind of thing so it was a nice scene in Cape Town at the time so this is like 96, 7, 8 it's kind of a special time for me personally but I mean I know that we all see this differently but uh, there was a lot happening and it, and it just seemed like a really like thriving time in terms of music lots of bands playing every you know, every weekend like I mean literally four nights a week you could go out and you could see at least one or two or three bands performing you know wow. a lot of rock stuff you know but there was a lot of crossover stuff happening which I liked you know there were bands like Firing Squad which was nice it was just like a really crossover type of band hip hop and raga live live musicians you know uh, there were lots of really interesting bands which I really dug Nine was one of my biggest influences in those early years of Cape Town when I arrived there um, I don't know if you heard of Nine. Mm-hmm. Nine was uh, Farrell Williams and uh, brothers James and um, I forgot get their surnames, but like uh, yeah, all colored band. When I say colored, so like all brown band. Like guys were just playing like this kind of like Rage Against the Machine type of like rap metal, wow. you know. Yeah. Which for Cape Town in ninety five, ninety six was like it was. Yeah, I mean, it was almost on par to like what was happening in Los Angeles, you know. So yeah. Cape Town at that time like reminded me a bit of like a small piece of LA, you know. Had that that uh, had a big mix of cultures. So there was, of course, like you had your white music and your black music, but if, there were places where that combined, you know, which was great. Which nowadays that. is hard to find, you know. It really is. I mean, you do see session musicians um, playing in like really like diverse type of bands, um, but somehow it's it's you know they're, they're session musicians. It wasn't this like there was a lot of pure creativity that was happening, which was amazing. So it wasn't really about. I'm, I'm doing this gig and I'm getting paid and how much am I getting paid? And I got another gig after this. It was like, you were down with a band and you were down with the band, you know, yeah. you were like in it until the thing broke, you know, <laughs> and that, that, that made it quite amazing. Actually, you know, there was this kind of dedication that was, uh, wasn't about sessioning for people. It was literally like you in this thing and you're going to like put your posters up, stick them right. under the bridge every, every weekend, you know, and our flies in the street during the day. 
um, yeah, it was a kind of so were they great gigs time. free or like um, were they paid gigs? I mean, no. Way. No, like so basically that was the other thing. Yeah, some gigs, some gigs uh, usually cover charge at the door. So you would, uh, for instance, the the Purple Turtle. I don't know if you remember that venue no. on the corner of Green Market Square, Long Street, Green uh, Short Market Street. There was a building there called the Purple Turtle. This is like nine, mid nineties. Um, so they would um, they had they had a program of band. I mean, a calendar of bands for the month. And you would, uh, with the owners of the club, arrange like a, a, a door deal, which meant like you got a portion of the door. You would have to okay, arrange yeah. your own door person and stamp and cash box. And so it was like a kind of a like a collaboration in a way, which which, which worked, you know. But what we then did with Moodfest Five because we, we we kind of saw the the, the the kind of we wanted to attract our own crowd of people because it was in a way it was dare I say it like it was groundbreaking in the way that it was really pulling people from different cultural backgrounds together yeah. you know, whereas the purple turtle was like a white gig you know it was like rock fans listening to rock bands every weekend you know so we started to look for our own venues in and around the city bowl and observatory and so we we started to basically host our own parties so denver as a designer would make up flyer um these flyers were awesome it's um pretty i don't have any as an example but like we had like a real kind of a form not a format but a, a look on the flyers that that spoke to something that was emerging it was like a uh, it really garnered the interest of people you know it was like yeah. this thing you know um so basically like we got a venue got some flyers out got the sound system organized which was usually friends with speakers and cables and mics and then we built up a following that way you know so by the time so by the time we had ernie and we were like say by 97 end of 97 like we, when we started doing those those gigs like we would have maybe 30 people in the gig not really covering costs, like literally just like breaking even. Or- yeah, breaking, not even breaking even. But within about a year and a half of doing that and building up, because people were, you know, word was getting out and this is happening and it's fun. And it was also different because, like I said, there was this cross cultural. It, it was the first time, person that I saw people coming from all sides of Cape Town, you know, coming to a gig together, you know, because oh. the music wasn't so specifically, uh, it was specifically for one demographic you know it wasn't just rock you know it was a mixture of psychedelic rock funk blues hip-hop soul music and it was kind of happening at one venue you know with one band so uh, eventually we had like uh, gigs where we would like regularly get 500 people in 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 the door and then eventually up to like a thousand people you know so like really we sort grow from 30 people for about four five six months just 30 people 40 people couple of hundred up to 500 and then up to almost a thousand people quite on a regular basis, you know? So we were starting to make some money at the door for the first time, proper bucks, you know? I mean, we had a big band and we had lots of people to pay as well. So it wasn't like, uh, you know, just yeah, yeah, all the costs because you take on everything yeah. yourself. You have to pay for the flyer, pay for the sound system, yeah. pay for the venue, pay for the bar people and all the other stuff. But it was, uh, it kind of created like a, uh, like a party vibe in Cape Town that was, um, that I personally hadn't seen before, you know. Again, I'm just just from my perspective. That's how it was, was for me. It was like it's something new. People were digging it, and at the same time, Denver and Adam were organizing uh, two shows. When I say shows, there were two like DJ uh, type of gigs. One was called Ghetto 3000, which is really popular. Also, similar type of crowds: 500 people, a thousand people, just like getting down to like the best DJs in town, sometimes international DJs. So Adam and Denver had really good thing going on. And the other show that Adam did on his own was called The Pickle, which was also pretty cool. It was like a Michaelis art scene kind of people. 
um, coming to these shows and it was mostly DJs, kind of eclectic beats, not so much uh, what Ghetto 3000 was, was more of a hip hop show. Uh, the Pickle was more of a kind of eclectic stuff like Amon Tobin, kind of like, um, like uh, yeah, eclectic type of drum and bass and jungle and, and, and uh, yeah, those kind of um, instrumental beats that were happening. So those were the kind of three things that were happening quite a lot. So it was the Mood Phase 5 shows, the Pickle and the Ghetto 3000 and that was it was happening for a few years, you know, and then, yeah, record company involvement and, uh, you know, things get kind of complicated. You know? <laughs> and of course, yeah, you, when you're young, I mean, speaking again for myself, you know, young and yeah, you're full of ideas and, 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 and uh, not that mature in terms of how you to make decisions. And, um, you know, everything's about, you know, it's about me and what I want to, I want to do this, you know, and we're going to do this. And anyway, so the point being long story short is that uh, after releasing the album, doing some shows, going to Joburg fairly regularly in Durban and some other spots and then heading overseas for a couple of good tours to Amsterdam, Czech Republic and Hamburg up Germany. So twice on that route, come back to Cape Town, new album in the works, new producers, um, Grenville Williams from Godessa, new collaborations with Godessa. Um, yeah, things just got, a, got really kind of complex in the way of how we were managing things. And because I mean, this is, again, my perspective, but the way it was running with African Dope was that um, we were the band that was making the label visible. And um, with that came, obviously, income and expenses. You know, they were starting to look for other uh, artists. So, yes, Felix LeBand was signed. And then later, Wadi Jones with Constructors was signed. And that record didn't even do that well. I mean, I love that record. Yeah. No. But it was such a concept, like so far ahead of its time that I don't think it did. Yeah. I don't even think people even know about constructors. Yeah, I think it was um, it was exactly the time when we fell out with them, you know, because yeah. it was like so the money they were making from Mood Phase was going into the other artists, you know, and also into us, you know. But it became, from our perspective, like uh, it, it was just not tenable. It was just not doable anymore. It was basically like we were making money. Well, Say again. Odessa as well. They were also signed to. Um, let me think. Odessa. Yeah. No, they opted to stay because Grenville then Grenville Williams, who's now in Johannesburg as the producer and bass player of Nine, actually, um, they opted to form their own um, label, label and keep uh, their stuff. I think they did a couple of singles with African Dope. But they had a few I think commercial hits. I mean, like um, yeah, natural, social area. ills and yeah, yeah, Ill yeah definitely. Yeah. Anyway, so to cut a long story short, we kind of fell out with the label um, and. Uh, and literally within some months of that, there were, yeah, there were various pregnancies in the band. So Bernie and I started, we had our first kid. Uh, Denver just had, within the eight months before us, had a had a son with his wife. And Douglas, the trumpeter, trumpet and also was expecting a baby. So that with the label and the complications, it just, it was too much, you know? Yeah. So we literally, yeah, we had some, 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 personal fallouts but nothing major it was just that a lot of pressure you know like to, to kind of keep it together yeah, the, go on tour yeah baby's coming you know it's the usual at home. And, um, yeah. thing isn't it <laughs> you grow up you yeah, get I mean, married you have oh yeah 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 so anyway that was kind of the end of that you know but um it, it was at a stage where we were earning money and we were we could have treated we were treating it like a career you know essentially um and then years after that it was so it, it uh Went back I think to many like bands weeks. are really sustainable in the long run. Like I mean, between I mean, obviously I engineer, so mm. I see I see the the lifespans of these bands. Like like uh, when when I st like 
about 10 years ago. So when I said like engineer for these young bands, you see them come together. They form like just in uni. They're all in university and they're all energetic. And then within three, four years, then the drummer starts dating this girl and then this happens. And then all of a sudden... Why are you playing the drummer, man? You always play oh, okay, the, the drummer. Okay, now the drummer, the guitarist. <laughs> <laughs> I see you got a nice bass standing there, man. I'm just like admiring. There's a nice big bass you got. Yes, there. that's my double bass, man. Um, I play, play bass. bass huh? So play yeah, bass. that's that's my mission. Um, I mean, I can mm. play by ear. I can play by ear, but bass is my instrument. I was given that bass. Uh, I used to do a lot of recording for jazz bands, and um, okay, the uh, one of the still a good friend of mine actually. His name is Vidal Montgomery. He plays with he played with Courtney Pine. Okay, jazz guys, you know, like um, yeah. All my life folk over here, Cameron, Pierre, uh, from St. Lucia, very sick, like um, jazz, jazz. Mm. I used to do lots of recording. And one day I told him, I was like, my mission is to learn double bass before I die. And he's like, yeah, hey, I got the double bass for you there, man. I was like, what? And yeah. Like, yeah, so last year he gave it to me and I've been just been practicing and trying to get Amazing, amazing. Stuff. It's a nice thing about Europe, you know, just like reflecting on that. Like people are quite free to give things, pass things on, you know? <laughs> the thing is, yeah, I mean, it's a very different, I mean, I'll use a simple example. Like my mother was here last year. She didn't want to take my kids to the park because she's uh. scared. It's not really something you do in South Africa, go alone yeah. to the park. So something simple like that, you know, over here you leave, I, I remember I had a gig in uh, Brixton over here. And as I came out the tube station, I dropped my wallet. And I must have had about 40 pounds or something. Oh, my God, mm. everything. Mm. Come to the gig now. It's it's about 10 minutes up the road. I check out oh, my wallet's gone. Dressing, I call my wife. I'm trying to get old. Yeah, like uh, half an hour later, this lady walks in there. She's like, yo, I found this wallet. I saw, I looked up your name. I found you on Facebook. I saw you playing a gig here and I brought your wallet Amazing. to you. And uh, wow. with the money and everything. <laughs> wow. So, so like, I'm not saying there's no crime here and stuff. There is like, you know, serious stuff. No, of there course, it's a big city. Yeah. yeah. There is a different perception. I think when, yeah. when the majority or like a lot of the people can afford certain things like phones yeah. and, you know, more nice That's trainers it, and stuff, then... Mm. You know, whereas over there, I'd say the majority of people are, you know, the opposite. So there's a hunger yeah. and a, a need, you know. You, you know, yeah. So yeah. You know, yeah. So if you pick up 50 rand, you're not going to go and now look and see. You're going to be like, yo, I'm going to go buy food or go buy, you know, do something. Big time. Big time. Now, it's, I mean, I, I, it's getting a bit off the subject now, but like since uh, March, you see the amount of homeless people on the streets is like tripled, like times five, like. It's just people everywhere in the streets, man. It's crazy. I mean, I mean it's just yeah, one, let's, one of the things. Let's go off the topic mm-hmm. a bit. Yeah, tell me about yeah. your, like your COVID experience. Yeah, the situation. I mean, uh, personally for me, like Cape Town was always tricky, you know, negotiating that 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 street thing. You know, there's like just so many people in the street. You know, not because like of, of fear. For me, it was because uh, I always uh, generally interact with with more with people like on the streets than I do with you know just like kind of normal like working people. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's got, uh, way more than it was five months, five, six months ago. So like I'd literally at every, I mean, you just drive down from, we live up on the devil's peak side. So we up in the towers, the three, you know, the three salt and pepper towers. So okay. Literally when you drive down, downhill and you get to your first nights, they're already, you're looking at least at, at the moment, like one, two, three. 15 or 20 like homeless people pitching tents under that first bridge you know mm. which like I said six months ago there was nobody sleeping there 
there's at least 20 people sleeping just like on the first set of lights. Then you will go to the next one. And literally at every set of lights, you'll see plastic tents pitched under branches, people standing oh. with their boards, white, black, you know, everybody. Um, of course, like if you look at the demographics of South Africa, you'll always see more, more black people on the street, but uh, lots of white people on the street as well, you know. Um, oh. Yeah, so that's that's changed a lot and I don't think it's going to get any better. I mean, so. Cape Town as a, as, a, as a city and South Africa as a country was relying on tourism for the last 25 years, you know, since Mandela was released, um, tourism to South Africa has really increased and, and has been, has been keeping us afloat because of, because of the apartheid legacy. People want to see where Nelson Mandela was in prison, Robben Island. I mean, you name it. There were a lot of places that people in other countries oh, yeah. wanted to visit, you know? Yeah. As a, as a matter of, of necessity before you die you got to go to robin island you know especially for for african americans robin island is the number one hotspot you know and i don't see that kind of that coming back anytime soon you know especially with um rules now that you need a you need a, a virus test before you leave and then you need to with that yeah. present that at the, at the immigration and then you're gonna have to have another one in the country it's all cost money as well you know yeah. so i don't think this is gonna be anything that kind of changes back to the way it was um, and Cape Town as a city relying on tourism, musicians are relying on bars and clubs and restaurants to pay them, uh, restaurants and bars and clubs paying all their staff, all the car watch guards in the streets at night because of bars and clubs and restaurants. It's had a huge effect on, on like a negative effect on the uh, income of people, you know. Um, it's hard to say, but I would say guessing, and my guess is off usually quite accurate is in terms of uh, what we've lost in the last months in terms of uh, in, not so much in income, but how many more unemployed people there are. You know, we were sitting at something between, we're sitting at the 30 to 40%. I used to tell this all the time because I was, you know, and I think right now we, we, there's at least another 25% or more people unemployed, you know, so it's, uh, it's going to have a huge effect and this is still the beginning. But again, not to be negative, because as you know, the where one door closes, another will open. It's uh, there will be new opportunities. People will be a little more interested in traveling locally. Um, we'll have to adapt. You know, the way we perform music, even people will be playing for free. You know, <laughs> this is what's what going to happen. You, um, what were you doing before that? I mean, well, I mean, how was it? Well, lockdown. I was uh, the last five years. I was working my as as a tour guide, basically for international visitors. So I was literally picking up oh, people in hotels. Yeah, it's gone. Yeah, yeah. Literally, I'm, well, I'm looking for new things, you know. So at the moment, I'm quite nice. I'm playing a lot. Uh, so I practice like yoga mat, you know. So I'm playing a bit um, um, and I'm and I'm into into like uh, gardening and, 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 and plants. So I'm like out in the garden a lot. Nice. Uh, so the property is bigger. So I get to kind of go out and I live in a block of flats, but the, the common property is huge, you know. So there's space. So I'm planting. Yeah, yeah, still married. I mean, legally speaking, we still live together. Me and Ernie, we have three kids together. So we live in a little apartment. Um, it's tight, but it's it's home, you know. It's like a yeah, yeah. cramped space, but it's all good. Um, kids are our oldest son is uh, 17, Noah, and uh, younger Toby's 15, and Yin, our daughter, is 11 now. So they've been going to school, but we also took them out of school. As soon as this COVID thing hit, we decided, no, we're going we're gonna to homeschool or at least get them out of that system, you know, because it was full of pressure, you know. Yeah. And people were kind of freaking out, but at the same time, school was just cupping on, you know. The, the, the machine was just <laughs> trying to churn on, you know. <laughs> Where we, we as parents were saying like, well, stop. We need to like 
re- reassess yeah, the situation. I took my kids straight away out, man. Like same time. Okay, you have kids, huh? Mm. Yes, I also got three kids. Okay, much younger than yours, though. So I'm okay. still the in the beginning. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But um, <coughs> yeah, they all are. They were all taken out of school. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. So at the moment, we, yeah, we were in Germany. So basically, like after the World Cup, we decided we're gonna leave Cape Town and try to do our music thing in another country, you know. And Germany seemed like a good option because of all the well, cities like Berlin and uh, Munich and Hamburg, where there's quite a lot happening, lots of festivals. And then we have some family down in Switzerland, so we thought, okay, Germany seems like a good option because um, we have some people down in Switzerland. And because my mother was German and she always maintained her citizen, her passport, German passport. She was a permanent resident in South Africa, but she had a German passport. So I could apply for for our kids to have German passports, which they got pretty quickly, you know, which was nice. a luck. Yeah, that's really good. So, yeah, we went to Germany for from 2011 until 2014. And, uh, yeah, we were hoping to, like, get Ernie's solo career so basically after Mood Phase 5, that's what we did then after that is like I focused my <clears throat> my attention on Ernie's uh, songs, you know. So she had a lot of really great songs and we started to record her songs. So we went to Germany then to try and promote that album, Dub for Mama, it's called Ernestine Dean. Yes. And um, so we tried to promote that there and get gigs, and but it was really hard, you know. It's like it, we had yeah. a little bit of a <laughs> kind of fantastic vision, but um, we tried, you know. No, I know lots of bands who've moved to Germany, I mean, to Berlin, mm. especially, and have come back with it. Yeah. Stuff. I mean, it's, mm. it's, it's conducive for, like, a lot of, two of the bands I knew that moved out there. It was easy for them to live and work and, and gig, but, like, in terms of building their music to a certain level, yeah. it wasn't the infrastructure for that, because you still need Definitely. London or, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. Yes, definitely. And I think also that's the thing about Germany as a music market. Wow, man, it's like cover bands, bro. It's like there's yeah, tons of them. David Asseloff or, you know. Yeah, I was shocked, you know, like like in Cape Town or in South Africa, it's like this. There's lots of creative, like uh, original bands and few cover bands. The cover bands are working. They're making money, you know, the jazz guys and they're, they're making bucks, you know. Yeah. Uh, the creative, you know, the, the the original bands are not making money, but they're great, you know. They're amazing. <laughs> For me, it was like the exact opposite. It was like there are tons of cover bands. They're all working. They're all making money. And they're very few, like almost, I, we like almost saw no original bands. It London is hard. very similar. London really? is very similar. Like, okay. There's, there's quite a few original bands, but most of them, I'd say a lot of them will have at least two or three members who dip. For cover bands who make living, um, living yeah, cover, yeah, yeah. cover bands. Mm. I mean, mm. some of these cover bands they they'll get flown to Dubai to play these hotels yeah. and stuff. And yes, yes. literally, I have, yeah. I have friends who are paying off mortgages playing in cover yeah. bands. Yeah, I believe you. It's, it's, it's a, a couple of people gig, in like, Cape Town doing this. Yeah, it's a, really there's a couple of gig. bands from Cape Town doing what you're doing. You know, like awesome musicians from the Cape Flats, good bands, good musos. They're off in Dubai and they're paying their bills. You know. Yeah, I mean, even in, in, in well, up, up until lockdown, the guys, that's what they were doing. They have uh, um, two gigs a weekend, you know, 200 pound gigs each. That's that's a salary. That's a monthly salary yeah. every weekend. Mm. You know what I mean? And they're literally just playing cover band gigs. Um, I used to do sound a lot, like uh, live a few years ago. Before I stopped doing live sound, but I'm mean, not mm. stopped. I used to do a lot of live sound for these guys. And uh, so many, I mean, that was the difference I could see, you know, between... Um, I mean, I have, I have a friend back home who has a company who does live sound, who was doing really well in Joburg. But uh, doing what I do, 
over there or doing what I did over there, I, I couldn't really see like making a proper living wage. Do you know what I mean? Or it, it, it's just mm-hmm. the sheer scale because like, yeah, there's so many clubs and pubs and venues, yeah. corporate functions everywhere. Yeah. The lockdown and stuff. So like, okay. So are you still busy as they work for you? Well, now I'm, I basically, I've, I've run my own studio. I mean, I, I had my own studio up until uh, the beginning of lockdown. I uh, shared it with a partner and then I kind of had to shut down when lockdown happened, which has actually worked out better because that overhead is gone. So I'm still getting work because I do a lot of mixing and uh, um, mixing and mastering. I do a lot of production oh, for people. Nice. So because loads of people are now working at home and making music yeah. at the computers, they need someone to kind of still do the final process. So Definitely. Friend, That's great. Cool. Nice. Our company, uh, Abstract Sound, <clears throat> we basically do the final touches we mix we master and mm-hmm. i've started using another studio now and uh, it's more of a play as you go basis so it's just better when people want to go in and, and record i just go there play them for the time just add that to my overhead whereas we were playing monthly and that was like used to kill us we were just used to like you know just about yeah definitely so, so what uh, what kind of what kind of uh, equipment are you working on when you're mixing and mastering um at the moment a lot in the box you know i mean i use pro tools i use logic yeah. Um I've got like loads of plugins. I've got a few bits of outboard. Mm. Um just a few choice like um, bus compressors and stuff like Yeah, yeah. Okay. clones and API clones, mm. stuff like that. Okay. You know, maybe some analog reverbs, but mostly everything in the in the box nowadays, you know. And then Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'll run okay. my final mixes through a, a SSL clone just to give it a bit of analog mm. and mm. stuff, but generally, yeah. That's how it is. It's uh, cool. it's all in the box, man. I mean, yeah, back, in, not back in the day, but like I used to, I used to work in commercial studios about before I had my own place for about seven, eight years in West London, and I used to work on a SSL um, 4000G. Or before that, we had, and then I mean, there's another place I use. We have like there was a Neve there. Mm. I've worked on most like you know analog consoles, but it just used to be it. It came to a point where it became tedious, you know, like recording yeah, mixes yeah. on an analog disc, and the client wants yeah. something changed. I yeah, do this no. fantastic mix. I'm yeah. putting it through all these analog things, and then the guy says, um, "Can you just yeah. speak that vocal there? Can you just change yeah. that up?" Oh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now in the box, I mean, I just yeah. Yeah, it's, it's incredible how much things have changed. I mean, I know these conversations have been, been had by the million, you know, like the last 20 years, what's happening in the music business, you know, in terms of technology and not just formats, but just the tech, man, is incredible. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. use um, I use UAD and like, honestly, I can safely say like their plugins and their emulations because I can record through their plugins as well. Yeah. So if yeah. I need an LA2A or I need a yeah. whatever yeah. compressor, Literally yeah, on the way in through a plugin yeah. and it sounds yeah like it's not the same yeah. but it's it's damn yeah. like really really yeah good. maybe it's better even who knows <laughs> possibly i mean who cares like yeah. i yeah, decided I long ago that i'm not going to be one of these um you know what is what do you call these people like purist purist i'm not, I'm not yeah because yeah, i, I kind of was on the cusp i like like you're saying hey that when i was studying sound engineering that was like 2002 three and we were bloody recording to the stupid ADAT machine thing, like, you know what I mean? And that was yeah, like yeah. a convergence of technology when they were changing. Yes. From, you know, mm-hmm. that the whole loudness wars thing started going on. So I did have analog experience and then I kind of went into the digital world. And so I prefer mm. 
at the end of the day, it's your ear. Like, make good music, make a good song. Definitely. No, I agree. I also love, I prefer just to, you work with what you have, you know, and that could be yeah. a bit of old gear, a bit of new gear, some software, you make it work, you know? Whatever. It doesn't really yeah. matter. Like, yeah, whatever. I literally, because I couldn't afford a lot of the stuff in the beginning, I used to use all the standard plugins, all the standard compressors, everything, just yeah. kind of yeah. prove to myself. And also because I had to, like, it's, it wasn't as transferable as now. Like now I've got my laptop, I've got my iLock, I've got everything on there. I can go to anywhere mm. and just plug my laptop in and I can plug in and play. When I was at the old studios, I used to go to different studios and they all had, I'd have to adapt. Like if they were using Logic, I'd have to use Logic. If they were using Pro Tools, I'd have to use that. I mean, I learned yeah. on Cubase, which I hate. Mm. <laughs> but uh, most places use these things. But I'd have to adapt. And like a compressor is a compressor. Yes, they've got colors and whatever. Yes, EQ mm-hmm. is an EQ. And like mm-hmm. I said, end yeah. of the day if the song is shit the most important things for me was no, yeah, a good song. musician a good song, song. and yeah. you know generally that yeah. makes the song good yeah that is that is it that is it definitely <laughs> so yeah, yeah the I mean, song is always about the song are you are you working on any stuff at the moment or like no not currently no um, well I, I play with uh, like once a week twice a week uh, I've got a friend not far away from here who's like like a gear junkie he's a collector but we, we play he's a guitar player so we just play bass and I mean sorry drums and, and, and guitar just to play mostly like his um, his uh, compositions like jazz stuff but it's right. more easy like blues jazz kind of you know like um, West Montgomery type of yeah. fun kind of stuff you know so yeah I'm, I'm playing which is great because I for the last five years I haven't been playing because I was wow. working yeah so the, the the phases of being, I've gone through those phases of uh, working two like two jobs, one as a musician, one as a like photographer in the photo- photographic industry or the film industry here in Cape Town. So I've gone through lots of phases of like doing lots of different jobs to uh, alongside music, you know. So there were some years where I was just focused on music, but um, currently the way things are going, again, I'm 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 uh, meeting. Well, there's a, there's a few different things that I enjoy doing, like I've already told you, music, plants, and and health. Kind of plants. <laughs> All kinds of. I, I love bonsais, you know, small trees. But um, yeah, it, mostly I do like food, plants, herbs, uh, cannabis. Of course, I grow cannabis because it's one of the most amazing plants on the planet. I was gonna say um, because it's it's legal then. Well, I don't know. Why. It has been yeah since um, when they passed the last one. They've been basically they've been amending the law for the last. Yeah, 10 years, you know, but basically at this stage, it's looking very good. Wow. Uh, you're allowed to have like a max amount of 1.2 kilograms on you, which is a lot of, lot of, lot of marijuana. You're allowed uh, to have it on you and smoke it. like. Well, not yeah, but basically if you're out in public, I think um, something like four, 500 grams, which is a lot, you know? Yeah. yeah that Three is to 400 problem. grams on you when you're out in public. If you're in your home, 1.2 kilos. Bro, if you're from London, you understand what <laughs> grams are because... You, are, you, know, you know how expensive <laughs> Zoro is over here. Yeah, yeah, gram, one gram. So oh, like, sorry. you know, so if you get caught in public, you're allowed to have between three and 400 grams of weight. Either 30 or 40 grams or, yeah, Maybe I think it's more like 30 40 or 40 grams. Because, yeah, because. Yeah, but it's a lot. 26 you know? grams is, a, is yeah. a, an ounce, isn't it? Or 28 yeah, grams is an ounce. Something like that. But personal, personal, um, for personal use in your own home, 1.2 kilogram max. Wow. And yeah. So yeah, the laws, but the, the, these are things that have been, like I said, they've been, they've been working on it for years now. You know, there, there are a lot of, um, cannabis activists in South Africa, in Cape Town and in Joburg, uh, lawyers and activists generally. And they've been, they've been, uh, 
put, putting pressure to her. They've been putting on a lot of pressure, the Dachau couple. I mean, these are people that have, that have paid the price, Mabru. They've been arrested so many times. They've got like a ton of like uh, outstanding cases with the government, but and they've also put pressure on government with lawyers and, and, and rights groups, you know, because our constitution supports freedom of religion. So again? I say, I wonder when it's going to happen over here. I mean, they've, they've, they've relaxed yeah. the laws on CBD, so they're, they're selling CBD now. Yeah. And, um, it's, they've upped the, um, the rating on, on weed. It's, they've actually classified it as a, uh, a higher, they've given it a higher um, classification. Because Almost. of the, the intensity of which how it's being grown, you know, that's, that's yeah. one downside is, is that the, the, the growing, just like the music industry has also changed a lot, you know, the how, how people are growing, not the quantities, but the, the, the intensity of the, yeah. of the product, you know, of the flowers. So they are, they are, to some, some of them are, do, are to a degree almost like, I guess, like mushrooms okay. almost, not quite, but yeah, they are ex- on the well, verge of hallucinogens. Talking about hallucinogens and stuff um, on another topic, do you, uh, are you religious or do you follow any like... Um, no, not specifically. No, I, I mean, I grew up Christian and, but I've exposed myself to, you know, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, a little bit like like thinking like um not thinking but like learning more about like how people come to beliefs so i love history i'm a big history yeah same guy you know i love reading history and uh sociology and a bit of psychology and philosophy but uh so yeah i'm not i'm not a religious person i don't belong to any any religious organization have you read any um graham hancock no no i haven't actually no no british writer Oh uh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds familiar. I must say that he's the, got the, the, um, some really interesting books, man. Like really, really. Is he alive? Is he current? Yeah, he's he's current. Uh, I don't know if you watch Joe Rogan at all. Yeah, sometimes, yeah, a little. But uh, he was he's he's been on Rogan a few times. Let me just okay. hear what the, the you say. Name. Jeff Hancock. Um, Graham. Graham Hancock. Graham. Yeah, one of his books. Yeah. So the um, fingerprints of the gods is one of his books. Of course, yes. And uh, I haven't so, read it, but I know the title. Yeah. Yeah. So, like a lot of he talks about lots of ancient civilizations. And, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I'm heavy. I, I love all those kind of things. Yes. Know? Yes. Definitely. I mean, uh, it's just similar in that way that I that I, I find fascinating that, that human beings, and not just human beings, but this planet, the nature is uh, it's, it's just so complex and so uh, wonderful. I mean, just taking cannabis as a plant or, or even mushrooms, there's so many plants that have got these uh, um, these properties, you know, that we can benefit from, you know, and uh, I, I mean, if there's, if that's the closest thing to religion that I, that I find is that all the keys to, to, to this life and the answers that we look for are, are here. It's, they're not really hidden. They are hidden in some ways, but like if you are questioning earnestly enough, they'll, they'll appear, you know. Yeah, yeah, have you heard of ayahuasca? Of course, yes, yes, yes. Uh, I mean, I've, I've done one, two ceremonies, yes. yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And what was that like? I mean, I've got some friends who are like not practicing shamans and stuff, but mm. they do ceremonies. Yeah. yeah. It was scary. I must be, if I'm going to be completely honest, it was, I thought I was going to die. You know, it was, uh, I wasn't prepared for it. It wasn't something that I'd researched before. I kind of went headlong into something that I wasn't really, I didn't know I was going into an ayahuasca ceremony and I wasn't in a great, personally, I wasn't in a great space emotionally, okay. spiritually. So it was a, it was a very scary experience, but I came out of it and the, the, the after effects were beneficial for me. You know, the, the contemplations afterwards, the, 
showed me how how much my mind is uh, controlling my my existence yeah. you know and when i say mind of course the mind we we divide it into certain categories you know but the subconscious mind that thing that we kind of just that auto, that autopilot mind is the one that i since then i've been more and more looking at my you know how do my thoughts um influence my reality but not just that where do thoughts come from and not necessarily to establish exactly where they come from but are they me or am i my thoughts or are they just passing like clouds you know That's and uh, so yeah so i mean ayahuasca brought me through a scary experience to a point where i've been more observant and aware of my mind my thoughts um not to identify with everything that comes into my head some of them are kind of scary you know some of yeah, the things of we can think are like Well, you can actually even think something so violent or something so radical, but if you identify with it, that's where I guess it becomes tricky because you don't need to identify with everything that comes through your head. You know, yeah. you don't know where these things come from. Could be stimulation, trauma. I mean, there's a dozen reasons why we have certain thoughts, or, or yeah, yes, why we think in a certain way. You know, check out if you, if you can find it. Um, there's a book called The Untethered Soul. The untethered soul. Also sounds By familiar, actually. Michael A. Singer, and he talks exactly about these things mm. about mm. this voice that's constantly going on inside your head and learning mm. how to actually remove yourself from this place. And yes, like, yes, like, yes, Yo, yes, who, yes. Who are you, and why are you like? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Telling me this crap. Yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, like, yeah, I mean social. Sometimes you just take this out. Yeah. Like, Is that me or like who the who the hell is thinking this shit? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Now, socialization is a heavy thing, you know. And um, the the nice thing is, I think, like you know, we're moving through all these things, and coronavirus has really put the spotlight again on self. You know, for me personally, but I know for many people, you know, mm. it's, uh, um, we can actually we can almost cut ourselves off from many of the things that society claims are important. You know, and um, You know, economy is one of them. You know, like what is economy? It's just an invention. You know, what is society and societal norms and uh, traditions? And I mean, culture, if you just look religion. at yeah, culture. I mean, even religion. You know, it's like where did those stories come from? I can I can respect them for what they are, but I didn't. I wasn't there. You know, I wasn't there when those things happened. So I can't take that as my story. You know, even although you can be socialized in that way in a in, in a religious sense. You know, whether you if if you Muslim or Christian or any of the others. You know, it's a Um, to be able to look at it like and make up your own mind about something you know that's for me the the is the magic you know yeah to be honest most of the dudes who like um, those religions are based on probably were saying the same thing was like yo like i found this thing you can do it too like i'm making my yeah. own opinion you don't need to now go and write a book about me and then mm. go and tell everybody that this is how yeah. you live like i'm just saying yeah. like yo this is inside of you You know, yes. find your way, find, search. Yeah. Like you said, ask yourself those questions. The answers are there, mm. man. Yeah, I think this is where it comes. Uh, I'm going to pull it back to music because that's what I find is always amazing to me about music is that music um, can tell a story without all the symbolism, you know, without all the tradition and 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 and, and dogma and. Uh, but it can it can spark a fire in you, you know, um, because of okay, because of the chordal structure, because of the major and the minor. Um, chords, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's something in, in chords. Um, and again, if you go from Western tuning to Eastern tuning, or should I say like how different instruments on different pieces of wood or different strings produce different sound. Sound is uh, one of the most underrated uh, things in modern culture. This is um, something that 
maybe one day will more and more come to be used as a means to heal people, to to to, to free people from uh, from the constraints of economy and all these boring things, you know, capitalism and uh, socialization and, and and politics and you know the battle of the sexes and you know I think this is the amazing thing about music is that you can't see it but you can feel it, you know, and you can oh, yeah. you can hear it but you, there's more. You can not just not only hear it, you can it stirs something in you, you know, and this is uh, that has the ability to 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 shape your life, you know. Um, I mean, one example is I was thinking about it today is. Um, been watching a lot of stuff um, on um, atheism versus again religion in a sense, and uh, one thing I, I enjoy what atheists say more than what I enjoy what religious people say generally. But there's a lot of beautiful things in religion, like art, music, stories, storytelling, symbolism in terms of uh, uh, life lessons and that kind of thing. But uh, one thing that that, uh, for instance, atheists, the stuff that I've been listening to, wouldn't necessarily be able to explain or maybe they would i don't know but the uh, point is that i was thinking there were the experiments done by a japanese um professor some years ago i actually went to one they came down to the aquarium in cape town to have a group of people pray over water and say nice things and bless the water and and then look at a drop under a microscope you know and and uh, see how the water you know takes on a form you know and uh, it's it was quite amazing to actually see that you know that uh, that water responds to to vibration to sound, and um, if you if you pump a certain vibration through a water molecule or uh, it changes shape basically you know, and with that it was uh, determined that um, words that you use that are uh, empowering, um, supportive, uh, loving um, get the crystal to look one way, whereas if you shout. The anger, the the you know the 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 in a violent way, the, the the water molecule changes a different shape, you know. So they were just saying that water has memory, and based on that, like you need to be conscious about how you talk around anything that contains water, which is everything on this planet, you know, which is quite amazing because um, yeah, everything contains water just like we do. So conscious use of words, uh, meaning of words, um, careful choice of words sound is power you know and i mean even those religious books say it was like in the beginning was the word you know and then you know it's like we're talking about sound and sound is such an underrated thing you know i think it's something that we still know quite little about but there are good markers to 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 um to get us on the route to see actually that it's quite phenomenal you know sound is incredible you know music is incredible it's that thing that's unseen but you can you can you can be blessed out. Says, you know? uh, one good thing about music, when it hits, you feel no pain. <laughs> but uh, yeah, beautiful man. line that. Oh, yes, bro. Oh, yes, bro. Oh, mm. Brian, you know, um, just in closing, man, thank you so much for coming. It's, it's a pleasure, man. Yeah. Me. Anything that you want to just uh, say before I, I uh, close off? No, I mean, great. I'm really, yeah, yeah I'm happy to chat. It was actually really nice meeting you face to face like this and uh, yeah, I'm glad that we met through Ernie, you know, one way or the other that we connected is, a, is an awesome thing. Thanks for inviting me. And, yeah, one time. I wish you all the best with your, with the music, um, with, with recording and generally with life and family and so that's all I can say now is uh, my message to you, my friend, is uh, yeah, have a blessed life, man. That's all I can say. Well, hopefully it's, uh, I'll be able to see you in, in person at some point. Um, that would be nice. Are you visiting the site sometime soon or maybe next well, year? Uh, I, I do plan to. I'm hoping in the next two years. I've got three kids, man. You know what? Traveling. Yeah, I know. I hear you. I hear you. No, no. I'm, <laughs> I, that question was very like when I when I said it, I was like, 
the hell is that going to be possible? <laughs> Young yeah, ones, last, you know. Yeah. The last time yeah. I was there, I was with two, and uh, we did go to Cape Town. My grandmother um, was still alive; she actually passed away this year. Um, ah. Also in LCs and that. But my dad also is still LCs. there. My dad is there. He lives there still in Cape Town. Um, okay, so. We will have to come and visit at some point. Hopefully. Yeah, definitely. No, vice versa, if I ever come that side, you'll be on my list of, of course, people. Of course. Thanks. And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm following your show. Well done and keep it up, man. You know. Thank you so much, man. Guys, yeah. um, this has been the Other Side of the Sun podcast. I'm the solo kid. That's Brian Nakuda. Don't forget to like, subscribe. You know the deal. Peace and love.